This program does not provide medical advice. We assume no liability for the information provided on MindForce Radio. Please consult your physician before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. This is Lieutenant R.J. Hicks from Malmstrom Air Force Base. When I need strength training advice, I go to Bob Whelan at webstrengthcoach.com. Go MindForce Radio. From Mind Force Radio, this is Natural Strength Night with Maximum Bob. On Natural Strength Night, we don't talk about the other things Bob likes to talk about. Tonight, we only talk strength training. When I say strength training, I don't mean training like punk-ass goons in the muscle magazines who jacked up on juice, steroids, and PEDs. I mean natural strength. Strength built on good food, heavy weights, and no shortcuts. If you want to learn about real natural strength, weight training the right way, the old school way, stick around. Bob and his friends just might teach you something. He's here, the host of Natural Strength Night, Maximum Bob Whelan. Tonight, our guest is Chuck Miller. I have known Chuck for almost 20 years. He lived in the D.C. area when I was there and had several workouts at my gym, Whalen Strength Training. I've seen his strength firsthand. He attended several of my Capital City Strength Clinics, too. Chuck was the first trainee at WST to shoulder the 250-pound Atomic Athletic Granite Stone. Chuck has competed as a powerlifter for many years, and he has totaled raw elite in two separate weight classes. Chuck had a 600-pound squat a 380 bench press, and a 620 deadlift in the 220-pound weight class. He is a certified strength and conditioning specialist and has written dozens of articles for Hard Gainer, Milo, and others. Chuck is going to be talking to us tonight about his great new book, written about the training principles of Stuart McRobert, Inside the Mind of an Iron Icon. It's an in-depth interview with Stuart. Stewart is the author of Brawn and many other great training books, as well as the publisher of Hard Gainer Magazine, one of the best training magazines ever, if not the best. I'm proud to have been a regular writer for Hard Gainer from 1994 to 2004. I strongly endorse all of Stewart's products at hardgainer.com. I had Stewart on the show a few years ago, too. We had a great interview. It's on episode 21. Now listen. To order Chuck's great new book, Inside the Mind of an Iron Icon, or to contact Chuck, please visit Chuck's website at trainwithchuck.com. That's trainwithchuck.com. And Chuck, buddy, it's great to have you on the show, and welcome to Natural Strength Night. Thanks so much, Bob. It's a real honor to be on the show with you. I feel like I'm stepping back in time a little bit. When I first started reading Hard Gainer magazine in the early 90s, I read all your articles and became a fan. And, and then we then I came down to D.C. and connected with you there. Um, so we've kind of kept in touch off and on, but I've, I've always respected and admired you. So I'm like a 
I'm like a, a kid in a candy store being on your show. Thanks a lot, Chuck. No, I really appreciate that. Please tell us, how did you come to know Stuart and, and even write a book with him? Sure. It's, it's kind of a, um, a turning point in my life, really, and just one of those fortuitous things that, that just sort of happens. Um, I was actually in a grocery store in Morgantown, West Virginia. I was probably about a I'm guessing I was 19 or 20. This would have been like 1990 or 91. I was in college at West Virginia University, poor college kid, and, and I went to the grocery store to pick up some scraps, uh, and I was waiting in the checkout line, and I picked up Iron Man magazine. And I thought, oh, good, there are a few people in front of me. I can skim the whole magazine because I don't have enough money to pay for it. Um, <laughs> so, I'll, so I'll read this while they check me out. And I, w I was flipping through, and it was all the usual stuff, um, you know, nothing much of value. And I stumbled across this article by Stewart. And it, it was a short one. And I didn't even know the author's name because they, they didn't put his name until the end of it. But I just started reading this thing. And it, it, Stewart's a pretty compelling writer, I find. I mean, he's he's so direct, and um, he, he, he just uh, draws me in pretty easily. So I, I started reading this, and it was radically different from the training advice in the rest of that magazine or in any of those magazines at that time. Really basic two-day-a-week program he outlined, I think. Talked about how you need to emphasize poundage progression and get stronger if you want to build muscles. And uh, it really resonated with me. And um, at the end of the article was um, a, a little, um, you know, it, it said his name and put his address and said that he had written a book and had started a new training magazine, if, if you were interested in either, to contact him at this address. I think this was pre-Internet and all that. So, you know, right. you li literally had to write to people if you wanted to contact them. So right. I'm not particularly I'm not particularly proud of this next fact, but I I didn't have a pen with me. I knew I wasn't going to remember that address. I I tore that page out of our land. Put his address on it. Because I thought, I thought no one else that picks no one else that picks this up is going to care anyway. Uh, but, so I, I I tore that page out and I shoved it in my pocket. And as soon as I got home, um, I, I I wrote to him, and I think I even that very first little correspondence, I scraped together enough money. He had a deal where you could get um, Braun and Hard Gainer together for a reduced price. So mm. I, I went ahead and uh, probably didn't eat well for a week there or something. Wow. And uh, and and they came, and I, I read Braun the the day it arrived. I read the whole book, and I even wow. I, there. Chapter chapter three or something like that is the routines chapter, and mm -hmm. I flipped right to that chapter to start, and the first paragraph says something like, if you flip to this chapter, stop, go back and read from the beginning. You're not going to understand the context for these programs if you don't read what comes before them, and you, if you don't understand the philosophy, you're not going to buy into it, and you won't do it. So don't read the programs first, and I thought – wow, this guy is inside my head. I literally <laughs> did what he said not to do, and he caught me. And <laughs> so I thought, I I'm going to follow this guy's advice because he knows what the hell I'm thinking. 
Um, so I went back and I read the whole book. Uh, and, and wow. then I started following the routines, and, and uh, my training just took off. And uh, I met a good training partner, and shortly after that, I, I started competing. Uh, and then, and then it, down the road, I, I wrote articles for him. So it, it really turned my whole training life around. Tell us how it took you a long time, because I, I know you told me this before, but it took you many, many years trying to convince Stuart to do this and tell us how you finally got him to do it. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how I finally got him to do it. Uh, Stuart tends to be a very private person. I, I'll tease him sometimes, and um, we mostly <laughs> correspond through email. We talk on the phone occasionally. It's been a, quite a while since we had a phone conversation, though. But So we did the whole interview through email back and forth right. I, i've never i've never obviously been to cyprus or met him in person i don't know if you have you met him bob like never physically? met him same as you mainly phone and yeah. email yeah yeah so you know he's really private and and even and, and he's i think he's pretty english too sometimes although when i heard him on the podcast i was joking with him and i said i thought you were going to sound all aristocratic and like some London elite person and I don't know much about English accents but he sort of he more reminded me of like some industrial English bloke who who grew up on the hard scrabble streets or something like that so he's just not he's just not really a guy that you joke around a, a whole lot with but um I, I yeah he's him all business from time to, yeah he's all business but but I do tease him from time to time about how we've been friends for um, you know probably 25 years and and really in some ways although I've learned a lot more over the years he really he really just likes to talk training and stuff and I think what I'm getting at here is I think his mindset uh, of just being I mean he lives on an island and he, and he's not really in the public eye too much anymore he's always been a very private person so I think it was just difficult to get him to want to open up about himself. He'd rather talk about anything else. But when when I finally told him that, you know, we would keep it, that I did want to delve into a few personal things in the interview because I knew there were people like me that had read his stuff for years and wanted to know a little bit more about him. But I told him we would keep it like 80% training focused. And I think I just right. wore him down over time, you know, perseverance. <laughs> it's like anything else good in life that happens, you just keep after it until sometimes you can't force everything you can't just get your way about everything in life but i just kept after him and i thought one day he'll have a weak moment and he'll break down and he'll agree to do this thing and um you know he 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 finally agreed to do it and i think in the end he was he was happy that we that we did it together so right you started out with just an article but then it grew into a book right that's right. I, yes, yes. I, I kind of forget that now at times. So I had a, I write here and there for different magazines uh, and, and some online publications. And I, I usually pitch my idea really good before I write the article because I want them to pick it up and I don't want to waste my time with it. Um, but I thought, you know what, even if nobody picks this one up, uh, it's, it's kind of follows in line with what I think some of them would like. But even if they don't, I want to do it. So I started it, and most of my articles are like 2,500 words in length. Well, we quickly got to like something like between 6,000 and 7,500 words. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is like a three-part article already. You know, it's going right. to be three 2,000-word articles. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I actually tried to sell that a, a few different places, and you can see why. Sometimes people would have a hard time with a three-parter with, with um, 
uh, interest spans being what they are today, you know, you can't get somebody to read a soundbite blurb, much less a 6,000-word a article. So I, I had trouble selling it. And I went back to Stuart and I said, um, we, we've, we verbally vomited here. We got too long. I'm having a little trouble selling this thing. And that at that point, he said, let's just keep going with it, Chuck. I, I, I'll publish it uh, as a book. We'll, we'll publish it through CS Publishing, and let's just see where we end up. And I was so happy wow. at that point. I thought, That's I thought we're going to really be able to explore. Yeah, yeah. Please tell us where you were born and raised and your early background and uh, you know what got you started in strength training. Sure, sure. I always love talking about my hometown because I, I still say to this day that probably the five or ten toughest guys I've ever met in my life are from Bridgeport, West Virginia. And and that's where I grew up, a little town in north central West Virginia, um, nice little place to grow up, you know, not not a ton to do there, but not not poor and backwoodsy and people running around barefoot like you <laughs> sometimes think of West Virginia. I had a typical childhood, like most kids, um, with the exception of I, I didn't have a father around growing up. My, my father died of a heart attack when I was three years old, but that's, that's oh, wow. kind of a, another story. Apart from that, uh, growing up in Bridgeport, I had a typical you know, childhood. We had a we had a mall when I was a teenager. Everybody ha- hung out at the mall just like they do in small towns across America, or they did when I was growing up. Um, mm-hmm. And and I would say sports were a big a big part of being in Bridgeport, West Virginia. Uh, most of our athletic teams at our high school were pretty successful. Uh, the football team that I played for pretty much made the playoffs every year, and um, we won a state title my senior year. So. Uh, athletics were big in Bridgeport, and pretty much we just, you know, we went to school every day, and and after school we would all um, try to get kids together to play a game of something. If we were out of season on on one of the competitive sports, well, we'd all all get together and play something. So, you know, I spent I spent a lot of my time in West Virginia outdoors playing sports, and and stuff like that. And to get back to your question, I think I got into weight training because I was small. Um, Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I just developed slower than some of the other kids. So I think I was the smallest boy in my class. No, the smallest kid overall, boy or girl, until about sixth or seventh grade. Yeah, and then I I was just short and little. And then I passed a few of the girls, you know, and then by like eighth or ninth grade, I was no longer the smallest boy, but I was still probably in the bottom ten or something like that. So I, I was just small. But I wanted to play sports, and um, somehow, you know, I was never a stupid kid. Um, I, I discovered weight training. I even I even have pictures of myself as like a six-year-old at Christmas. My mom got me these water-filled weights, and I'm pressing them overhead by the Christmas tree. And I actually remember as a six-year-old or whatever thinking, well, these water-filled weights aren't going to do it forever. i got to get strong enough to lift all the water-filled weights so that my mom will get me the cast iron weights. And <laughs> okay. I, 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 didn't, um, I didn't know, I didn't write my programs down then or anything, but I messed around with those water-filled weights, you know, several times a week until I was able to go to my mom and say, Mom, I've outgrown these things. I need real weights. And then she went and got right. me real weights, and I just kept going from there. Um, That's there, awesome. was a, there was another un- there was another unusual big influence that got me into training a little bit. Uh, when I was a kid, very early on, I, I liked watching 
NFL football on TV. I mean, as a young kid, like in the mm-hmm. mid seventies, when I was only six or seven years old, I would sit and watch entire games. And I don't know if it was because I didn't have a father around and I wanted to see male influences or something like that, but mm-hmm. there was a running back for the Texas Longhorns and then for the Houston Oilers named Earl Campbell. Oh, yeah. Earl Campbell just ran. Earl Campbell just ran over everything in his path. I mean, he didn't mm-hmm. he didn't have too many moves that I remember, but he was big and strong and fast, and he would just try to lay you out. And he had these <laughs> huge he had these huge thighs. Uh, I mean, he couldn't even keep his thigh pads up. He was constantly adjusting these thigh pads. I, I, I think in, a, in the press they said that his thighs were like over 30 inches each, and I don't know if I believe that. That would be humongous. But he had enormous legs, and I, I love Earl. I love Earl to this day, man. He's kind of he's older and he's kind of wheelchair bound, and it's a little bit sad now. Probably the, his running style did some of that to him. But right. I looked at Earl and I looked at myself and I thought, I, I'm not Earl, and the only way <laughs> I'm going to be kind of like Earl is is if I is if I train to get bigger legs. He might have been born with them, but I sure as hell wasn't. So. Right. Uh, I, you know, I started training legs. I might have been doing everything wrong, but at least I was training legs as an early teenager because I, quote, wanted to be like Earl. Yeah, now I know why you like LeGarrette Blunt. Yes, yes, he reminds me of a, of a modern-day Earl Campbell. What is the biggest training mistake that natural trainees make? Well, I, I, I mean, they probably make a lot of mistakes, but I, my experience, the biggest mistake they make is trying to do too much too often, and the, the words that we toss around are volume and frequency. Too much volume right. in any given training session, a lot of it with the wrong exercises, and, and then doing them too often. I was laughing even just the other day. This I, I lifted a gym in Hawaii called Mana Barbell, and it's a super place with a lot of strong lifters. But um, and, and this kid that I'm getting ready to tell the story about is even a strong kid, but He's probably only 20 or 22 years old, and uh, he squats. He already is squatting three times a week, and which I think is way too – you don't need to squat three times a week. I don't care what anybody right. tells you. But he comes up to me the other day, and he says, thank God, Chuck, they're, they're finally going to start opening the gym on Saturday because three days a week training is just not enough for me to pro- progress. <laughs> I'm going to be able to get that fourth day in. And I just kind of looked at him sideways, and I said, are you going to squat on that fourth day? And he literally said, hell yes, I am. And and I thought, you know, great attitude, but just completely misguided. You know, I I wanted to say, hell, cut one one of your three days out. You'll be better off training two days a week. I mean, especially if you're going to go full body like he likes to. But – you know, they just don't get it. They think they're, the the culture of the American work work ethic, where it's like if you want to if you want to get ahead, work more hours. You know, it's just ingrained in everything you do. I think as uh, in America, and so people assume, assume I need to train more if I'm right. more more often, more sets, more reps if I want to get better. And the only way to do that is to take your intensity way down. And if right. you're using 50 or 60% for tons and tons of sets, you know, I just don't think that's the optimal way to get stronger. I think you'd be much better no. off with, uh, with a program that allowed you to go heavy on each lift, more like once a week. 
So, and, and I can outline specific programs if you would like, but, but I, I really think that the, that the maximum, what I like to call the maximum effective volume, would be a program where you squat twice a week, bench twice a week, and deadlift once a week. And that is the absolute most a person can handle. And on the second squat and bench session, you would actually be better off if you would use a variation that either forced you to go lighter or limited your range of motion. So, like, if you're going to squat, um, you know, heavy on Mondays and then you want to squat light on Thursdays or whatever, well, make it a front squat or a safety bar squat or something that forces you to lower the poundage. If you're going to bench heavy one day and then you want to get in a second bench session, fine. Use a variation, maybe even an overhead press that's not really a bench press or an incline bench press or dumbbells or something that forces you. So I don't even think two heavy sessions for squat and bench is is going to be optimal. I think if you want to squat and bench twice a week, one of them has got to be a variation that forces you to go lighter or, or maybe a right. partial range of motion lift. Um, and then and then deadlifting once a week, but m- most people don't even need that. You you could be you'll be fine if you can just squat, bench, and deadlift, and then maybe overhead press if that's something you like once a week for each, and then do some back work, and you're all set. And I've even just to just to finish it up, I've even had good success at times in my life when I when I, my time for training was cramped, where I would squat one week and deadlift the next. I would literally alternate right. squats and deadlifts week to week, and I did fine with that and, and even progressed and was able to compete. I just think young, young kids get completely confused on that point, and, and they just do more and more when they really should be cutting it back. Yeah, I really like what you wrote about Stuart's philosophy, especially keep it simple and just the basics. Please compare that to the crap from most of today's so-called experts who go out of their way to make things more complex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's, That is definitely still true today. Now, what I will say, when we were coming up, there were far, um, far fewer sources of information, and uh, uh, the uh, the few sources that they were, they were mostly bad. So, like like the newsstand magazines that that we had to read in the '80s and early '90s were horrible. It was all the right. routines of the bodybuilding champions that were, I think they were ghostwritten anyway. The, the, I don't even know if the bodybuilders followed them, um, but they were terrible routines. You know, most of the time, five, six days a week, sometimes twice a day. Um, sets and reps and volume that would, that would kill the biggest, hardiest boned man out there, much less somebody who was just more and more normal. And I'll get into, I, I want to talk about hard gainer versus normal gainer because I, I, in the book, I ask, you know, the term hard gainer puts a lot of people off. And I, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask Stuart in the book, what did you really mean by hard gainer? And he said, Chuck, I, you know, I'm so, if that offends people, you know, I, that's, that was not my intent. What, what I really meant, and I'm paraphrasing him, he might jump in and say you got it a little bit wrong, Chuck, but what he was really going at with hard gainer was normal gainer, average person, right. you know, just, just the guy who was maybe born without the genetic gifts of a champion lifter, but just, just your kind of guy with a six-and-a-half to seven-and-a-half-inch wrist and um, – you know that, that wouldn't stand out as somebody who has just naturally a lot of muscle. Um, he was just going for that guy, the guy who has tried these different routines that he's read about in the magazines and hasn't had really good 
success with them. And and that's who he was targeting. Um, so I think that term gets misconstrued. When people ask me, I emphasize the natural aspect of it. I, I emphasize yeah. hard gainer means without drugs. Right, right, right. And that's, and that's certainly a big aspect of it. Um, and But also, you know, I think people get this image of a really frail, like the 98-pound weakling on the beach getting sand kicked in their face. And, yes, <laughs> yeah. that guy will – that guy, if he's going to progress on any type of training, it's probably going to be some – something like Stuart recommends. And, and so it is, it is targeted at that guy too, but it's also targeted at the guy who's, you know, um, five, nine and walking around at 160 pounds untrained. That that's not, right. that's pretty much a normal guy. And, or, or the guy who's, you know, overweight and chubby at five, nine. And, uh, those are pretty much normal people that you see on the street all the time. But those are the people I think that, that Stuart was hoping would, would pick up on the hard gainer philosophy and, um, and, and be able to do really well with it. How do you train now versus, well, let me redo the question here because I know you're still powerlifting. So uh, why don't you go over how you train now? Well, you know, I, I do still power lift, although, I mean, I would even, I'm 47 years old, and um, no, no matter whether you use your body throughout your, you know, I have 47-year-old friends who, they're far more broken down than me, and, and they've never trained a day in their life, but, you know, obviously, I'd be lying to you if I said that, that, um, that I felt like I did when I was 25 years old. I mean, I have some little nagging aches and pains here right. and there. When I get up in the morning, my, my knees and it don't, or my ankles or whatever don't even don't feel quite like they did um, when when I was younger. So I've I've had to devote more time to um, some mobility work and and I really do a thorough warm up before I begin to train now. But maybe I would start the warm up a little bit when when I was younger. Um, so I've I've definitely had to make some concessions, but I do still like to lift heavy, um, it, even if I haven't made a ton of uh, progress upwards in the weight the last few years. I'm, I'm at least holding steady, which by default m makes me do a little bit better against the master's competition that, that I'm now, you know, I'm now in the master's class. And, and as guys' weights start to drop, if my weights just kind of hang on, um, sometimes I can beat a guy who maybe would, was able to beat me in his prime. Um, but so I, so I still train, you know, fortunately the hard gainer philosophy, the hard gainer way of training, I think is a way of training that you can take into your later years. Um, right. But, but at some point, at some point I'll just probably lighten the load and, and maybe chase some rep records that, that I've, I've never, um, you know, really had the time to devote to before. I, I, I've always, I've always thought a 405 for 20 squat would be pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I do think I could do that um, if I trained for it. I, at one time I got up to like 365 for 20, and, and they're, they're kind of miserable, so I abandoned them at that point and then got ready for a meet. But um, I, I think that, that uh, you know, some, some things like that could maybe help as I get older. Although even, even chasing a rep record, you know, if you let your form get sloppy or something, as an older lifter, you don't have as much room for error. So you do have to be careful trying to bang out reps toward the end of a set. Um, 
as an older lifter. But um, to this point, I've still been able to compete in in powerlifting. You know, Stuart and I have talked, and he thinks I should probably reduce my body weight at some point and and go to a little bit more joint friendly. Um, method of training where I don't load up my my spine quite so heavy with squats and deadlifts, and I'm sure I'll transition to that at some point, but I'm also a stubborn West Virginia boy who I want to drag this out <laughs> as long as I can because I love it. Um, right. I, I do know, Now I know what I wanted to touch on. You asked me about the complexity of training, and I kind of trailed off with my hard gainer response. If you don't mind, let me go back and address that complexity issue just a little bit. It, it just popped in my head. So, we only had a few sources of, of information when um, when we were kids, and they were mostly bad. Until I stumbled on Hard Gainer, I didn't read a, one good thing about training, honestly. Um, nowadays, I do think that with the proliferation of information that's available out there, there is some good stuff mixed in with the bad stuff where we didn't even have any good stuff. Um, and, and I, you know, you might – I don't know if you like other people's names being mentioned on your show. I have no – no affiliation with this guy, no no motivation to throw him money. But I, I think a program like Jim Wendler's 531 is very similar. I told Stuart this, you know, it, this is very similar to a hard gainer program, and it's been very popular. So mm-hmm. there are some programs out there and some training philosophies nowadays that would line up with a low-volume approach um, that we didn't have. So, so But the problem is kids – Kids, I still think when they're reading a training information online and whatever, it's, they just gravitate toward the bad information. Anyway, they gravitate toward whatever says do more, and right. and that's the problem with complexity of training. And then one last point on that, um, warm-ups and mobility work has just gotten crazy over the years. Uh, we used to warm up, a very simple warm-up, where you would kind of you would do something like a stationary bike or whatever to to kind of get your heart rate up a little bit, maybe break a little light sweat, and then you would largely lo- use the lifts you were going to train with progressively heavier loads for your warm up. You know, I, I would right. get on the stationary bike for five minutes, do some little targeted mobility stuff for a couple minutes, and then start squatting light, and then build up the weight, and that was my whole warm up. You know, nowadays, well, that's a lot compared to most people. Yeah, a lot of yeah, people right, say they right. warm up and, and they don't warm up at all. Right, but nowadays these strength coaches send you through. Um, uh, you look like a gymnast or something trying to warm up. You, you have fifteen different mobility drills you have to do before you get to the workout. And I've I've actually tried a couple of those things. And you you know if you spend twenty minutes warming up or a half hour warming up. I'm drenched in sweat and I'm exhausted and I don't even feel like getting to the weights. So I think there's just another example of unnecessary complexity. I mean, if you have, if you really have a mobility issue to work on, something where your hips are tight or your ankles don't allow, don't flex enough for you to get into the proper positions for the squat, fine, work on that specific issue. But it's the rare person who's head-to-toe mobility is so messed up that they need to be doing everything under the sun for it. So just just human beings in general, financial advice, whatever it is, we like to make it so complicated that you can't even follow it. I don't even think the coaches who write some of these programs can follow them. It also depends on what the primary goal of your training is because a lot of these people, they're not really strength-focused. They're See, there's a big difference between strength and conditioning 
for an athlete that's not a strength athlete. So, yeah, if you're going to be lifting weights for a baseball player, that might make, make sense because they're not strength-focused like you as a power lifter would be. For, for you, you don't want to waste your strength at all. I mean, because your whole focus, your whole sport yeah. is strength. You're one rep max, so you don't right. want to – so you know, the, the warm-up that you do for powerlifting is perfect. Right, right. But even for that baseball player, and I know you train many more athletes than me, Bob, and I always love the way you train athletes. I mean, even that baseball player, there's quite a bit of emphasis on getting that guy stronger because, right. you know, and, I, and strength confers all kind of athletic benefits. And I just think sometimes that we start out with good intentions, you know, we know we want to make our athletes stronger, and then we have them doing all this stuff. Um, because we think, oh, that's important too, and some of it is to a point, but you end up not making them a whole lot stronger because you're exhausting them with with all this. And I, I just agree. I see it around me, and um, I think, man, this person would just be better off if they um, if they just focused on a, a few less goals at one time. You can't. What is that saying? You know, you can't serve multiple mistresses or whatever. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. You do have to. You do have to pick. I agree. I mean, you you don't want to. It's a waste of energy. I mean, you only have so much energy to get you through the workout, and you don't want to waste half of it yeah. warming up. I agree. I don't like. Right. I don't like huge long warm ups. I mean, even for athletes that aren't strength athletes, I, I pretty much do the same thing. I'll have them do the five minute warm up on the cardio machine, and maybe a few. Not too much. I don't waste too much time on stretching, but I just do a few to cover my ass yeah. mainly. And that's yeah. basically it. And then uh, th- then the warm-up sets of whatever the exercise is, and that's it. I, mean, I don't waste too much time on it yeah. either. I think it's yeah. a waste yeah. of calories. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be squatting or something, you know, I love those simple stretch where you, like, um, grab the post on the squat rack and sit down into your squat and sit down really nice and deep and just kind of move your hips around and maybe pry your elbows out against your inner thighs a little bit to um to to encourage your hips to open up a little bit and just kind of sit in the bottom of the squat there a little bit and get comfortable you know um i, I think your warm-ups should sort of follow the movements you're going to do and then, then so maybe you do a few of those and then some air squats and you, you grab right. a kettlebell or something that it offers a little bit of a counterbalance in front of your body that's typically a little bit easier to, to squat deep with. So you've got like some light kettlebell, you know, a 30-pound kettlebell or something, and you just kind of sit down into some nice smooth squats before you re- right. start squatting. But it's all like it's all like progressively more challenging squats until you're ready to get under the bar and actually do some squats with the bar. It's not all this other crazy stuff. You're going to be squatting, so do some warm-ups that will help you get into good squat positions. Exactly. We'll be back with more right after this. This segment brought to you by VitalNutritionStore.com. Did you know that more than 7 million Americans suffer from coronary heart disease, the most common form of heart disease? Regardless of your age or condition, adding Cardio for Life to your daily regime will dramatically improve your cardiovascular condition. Cardio for Life has been the top-selling Enlarger 9 product in the marketplace now for more than three years. It is also the top-selling product at VitalNutritionStore.com. Formulated by Dr. Harry Elwart, the best-selling author of Let's Stop the Number One Killer of Americans Today, Dr. Harry believes together we can prevent and reverse heart disease. 
Cardier for Life comes in three wonderful flavours. Orange, peach and grape. And is gluten-free, sugar-free and sodium-free. Please see our complete line of natural products at vitalnutritionstore.com. That's V-I-T-A-L nutritionstore.com. Randy Roach shocked the world with the release of his first volume of Muscle Smoke and Mirrors several years ago. It was a masterpiece of over 500 pages with such in-depth research and detail that it was not only surprising, but shocking and mind-blowing. It was truly one of the best Iron Game history books ever written. He followed that with Volume 2, another epic book with over 700 pages of equal depth and detail. All serious Iron Game fans need to have these books. Please visit Randy's website at randyroach.ca. That's R-A-N-D-Y-R-O-A-C-H dot C-A. Listen to how Iron Game legend and the Iron Master editor, Osmo Kihaw, describes the book Supernatural Strength. Have you ever wondered how much real-world experience authors have when they write books about weight training? Who is that person behind the computer? What do they really know about the Iron Game? If you picked up this book, Supernatural Strength, you have definitely come to the right place. The author, Bob Whalen, has spent several decades in the Iron Game trenches training himself, competing and coaching in powerlifting, earning academic credentials too numerous to mention, and thousands of hours of training and instructing athletes and trainees of all levels at his Washington, D.C. gym since 1990. He's not only devoted his life to motivating and pushing people to heights they have never been to, but elevating the trainees' understanding why certain methods work better than others. Bob is one of the most respected and revered trainers in the business today. This book is sure to surprise and amaze you at the same time. Order now at SupernaturalStrength.com. That's SupernaturalStrength.com. Don't you think it would be so much easier getting into shape if you had a personal coach? Just like all the celebrities do. Well, now you can. Bob Whalen of WebStrengthCoach.com wants to get you out of your rut and coach you to success. He's dedicated to helping you achieve your strength and fitness goals through your hard work and his expert guidance. Bob will help you with strength training, muscle building, fitness, nutrition, and motivation. He'll make sure you achieve your maximum physical potential. You can get one-on-one training with Bob through his website webstrengthcoach.com he will develop a personalized program tailored to your individual needs a program right for you bob will give you feedback after every workout this is old school fitness and nutrition no fads and no gimmicks bob will use proven natural techniques to make sure you are satisfied so visit webstrengthcoach.com today and let bob help you reach your best self webstrengthcoach.com Do you enjoy history without social engineering? Reading about our founding fathers? Economics from a capitalist perspective? Wisdom from modern patriots? Welcome to UncleSamBooks.com, where virtues like rugged individualism, hard work, and the American dream dominate. UncleSamBooks.com. Great books for homeschooling. UncleSamBooks.com. If you want to become as strong and muscular as possible with health in mind and without lowering yourself to using steroids, the best advice can be found in the classic strongman books of long ago. These are the best books ever written on the subjects of strength training, weightlifting, strongman training, iron game history, and old-time physical culture. Many of them can still be found at physicalculturebooks.com. There you will find good, honest, 
time-tested wisdom from the great old-time strongmen to maximize your natural muscular and strength potential. Please visit physicalculturebooks.com. Listen to Ken Manny, head strength and conditioning coach at Michigan State University, describe the book Iron Nation, a masterpiece text on some of the most intriguing and compelling personal stories, iron game history, and gut-wrenching training routines ever put to paper. If you truly love hard training without all the frills of pomp and circumstance so common today, you will love Iron Nation. Written by lifters for lifters. If you love weight training, you will love Iron Nation. Order now at ironnation.com. That's I R O N nation.com. If you would like to promote your business on Mindforce Radio, we would love to hear from you. Please let us know if you are interested in a 30 or 60 second voice commercial or a banner website ad. Please contact Bob using the contact information provided on mindforceradio.com. You're listening to Natural Strength Night on Mind Force Radio. point you were trying to make with the book well you know hopefully it was a point that uh, a lot of people picked up on but I, I do kind of feel like when I talk to some people about the book that they, they still got a lot out of the book but but maybe some of them missed my point and um, I got a friend of mine named Marty Gallagher to write the forward of the book and um, Marty is a is a really nice guy, but he can also be kind of grumpy at times. And uh, I actually I actually don't think he terribly wanted to write the forward, um, and, and that's not because he doesn't endorse Stewart's methods. Um, it's it's just because you know he I think he was even a little confused about the hard gainer term, and I and I had to really sit down and explain it to him. Marty has trained elite-level athletes for most of his life, uh, big-time champion powerlifters. And I met him. I was living in Waynesboro. I was living in Hagerstown, Maryland, and I worked in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, and a guy I worked with told me that Marty Gallagher lived in Waynesboro, and I knew the name at the time. He had written hundreds of articles for Powerlifting USA, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. That guy lives here. And I, so I literally, kind of like with Stuart, writing a letter and, and um, subscribing to his magazine, I literally flipped through the white pages of the phone book and called every Gallagher until I got to the right one. And wow. from there, I was, able to, I was able to develop a friendship with Marty Gallagher, and he's worked with famous powerlifters. I can throw names out there, and you'd know some of them, but I won't bother with that. And, and from, from me looking him up in the phone book, we developed a friendship that's lasted almost, as, you know, as long as my friendship with Stuart. I think I met Marty a few years after Stuart, but not many. And, and of course, I had the advantage. I lived right there in the neighboring town, so I've actually trained and competed with Marty Gallagher many times. And what I noticed over the years was that, wow, he, the high-level powerlifters he works with, 
he puts them on a program almost identical to a hard gainer program. He has them squatting, benching, deadlifting, and overhead pressing once a week with some limited assistance movements. I mean, one of, one of the Gallagher Hallmark routines that, that we've trained on a lot is squat and bench on Monday, uh, deadlift, and do some rows or some lap work on Thursday. And, and that's literally like it. Now, maybe you do some abs or something, maybe even maybe even throw in a few curls because you want your arms to look good if you have a date or something like that. But, but, but uh, a, a, a Gallagher routine that, that we trained and competed on that he used to tell me stories about these high-level power lifters that trained exactly the same way. And, hell, we would work up to one top set, not even multiple sets. We'd be doing fives. And we'd work up and, and do one top set of five and move on to the next exercise. So, and wow. I thought, he's, he's true. For, you know, and this goes back to that hard gainer term where uh, that people misconstrue. I'm like, hard gainer my ass. These, these guys have like 2,000-pound totals and, and more. Mm-hmm. They're certainly not hard gainers, and this is how they train. And mm-hmm. so I tried to make the point in the introduction to the book, in the conclusion to the book, and I tried to tr- try to even um, steer some of the questioning throughout the book toward that. And, and then specifically with asking Marty to write the forward, I tried to draw the parallel between hard gainer style training and training of real champion power lifters that, that I had brushed arms with. I talked about how, I wasn't entirely in either camp, but had slept in both. Um, where I wasn't totally a hardcore power lifter. You know, I was more of a strength trainer who competed in power lifting here and there. I always competed raw. I did do some geared meets early on, but for the most part, I, I competed raw. And so I wasn't really like the hardcore power lifter that a lot of Marty's friends were. And, but I wasn't just a recreational trainee either. So I was kind of, I, I kind of crossed both worlds, uh, the, the hardcore powerlifter world and the hard gainer world, and I saw so many similarities. And I right. thought if I, could, if I could make that comparison, maybe I could give some people some confidence to try the hard gainer methods um, who, were, who have been reluctant to do that because they think that those methods are only for 98-pound weaklings. You know, I'm like, no, no, they're not. They're for people that are so much stronger than you, they would crush you under their foot like a little bug. They are not just <laughs> – those methods work for big, strong, colossal human beings as well as for people that are just starting out and aren't that strong. You really need to give this a try, and I, I hope that came right. across, and I'm passionate about it. Chuck, describe ways to improve your exercise technique that Stuart mentioned in your book. Well, uh, there, there are a lot of ways to improve your exercise technique. I think, you know, probably the biggest one for a lot of people, if form's going to break down, even if you start out with pretty good form with lightweight, if, if you load too heavy, your form is going to break down. And we all want to progress. And sometimes we have predetermined calendars in our head where we think, you know, I write out 12-week programs. So week eight or whatever, I'm supposed to be doing a certain weight or a certain number of reps. Well, mm-hmm. if it's just not there, if it's just not there, your form is going to break down. So I, I would say the number one thing for for people is um, as you as the weight gets up there, if it gets to a weight that's causing your form to deteriorate, you got to put your ego aside and take the weight down. The the, the other thing is 
uh, a lot of people, and this goes with trying to lift more weights, you know, you, you cut corners and you start doing whatever you can try to do to make the weight move. Um, and that's using a lot of momentum, swinging the weights, um, cutting your depth on your squats, uh, you know, letting your, letting your hips shoot up and then good morninging the weight to, to the finish. Right. You know, when the, when the <laughs> power is getting too heavy, like guys will do that, you know, and it does, it does work a little bit. If, if you fire your hips out of the bottom and, and then kind of throw that load forward so that it's, it ends up being a good morning, that that does work a little bit to a point. You can you can maybe lift a little bit more than you can than you can squat with technically precise form, depending a little bit on your body weight. But man, that comes at a price because when you start doing that stuff, you start rounding your back, you start um, you know doing things that can lead to injury. So um, poor exercise form, you know, I think the root of that a lot of times is just piling the weight on too fast and then doing doing things to lift that weight that you know are not right. Um, and, and if you have good training partners or if you even tape some of your training, you can kind of nip mm-hmm. some of that stuff in the bud, man. You don't want a training partner who just strokes your ego and tells you how strong right. you are. You, you want a training partner who says, Hey man, I think that squat was an inch high. An inch, an inch. If you're an inch high, you know that's not much. But if you're squatting an inch high, that's a problem. If you go to a meet, um, that's right. And I would, I would argue it's, a, I would argue it's a problem for, for, for just overall strength and development as well. You know, um, not, not to say if you're older and you can't quite hit depth that you can't still squat productively uh, with a little bit higher squat. But that's kind of a, that's kind of a different different topic, different issue. Um, but, yeah, the main, the main thing with exercise form is just um, cut the weight back and, and use precise form even, and slow your reps down a little bit. Uh, the, the other thing is, you know, if you do have some mobility issue to work on, then work on it and maybe work on it on your off days, you know. Um, if your hips are tight or whatever, well, don't just sit around when you're not training all the time. Stretch a little bit on your off days, you know, take a walk mm-hmm. to loosen up and then do some targeted stretching to try to improve that mobility. Bouncing out of the bottom of the squat or coming up on the squat with your knees in together. A lot of guys do that. Yes. Yes. Terrible. And that's, that's back to that. It, when your knees start to cave in on the squat. Well, now sometimes you're just, you're a, you're a long, young lifter and, and they're caving in on you because you, you know, you, you don't know really that you need to force your, for, kind of force them out and keep them out. And so sometimes right. it's just a coaching cue to tell a guy not to do that. But, but a lot of times you're just piling weight on there faster than your body can handle. And, and so you're right. doing these things that while they may allow you to lift that weight uh, in the short term, the, the long-term price to your training longevity is great when, when you do that. Right. It's going to hurt you in the long run. Yeah. Please go over the sound nutrition principles that are in your book, you know, as compared to the mega hype muscle mag version. Yeah. And now, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you, Bob, I think that probably my weakest area of training knowledge is nutrition. And I think that that is just because nutrition is really not sexy. It's not exciting for me to read about carbohydrates and fats and proteins and caloric requirements 
and all that stuff. I mean, my eyes glaze over fast when, when I start talking or reading about nutrition. I like to about, talk about squatting and deadlifting and, and how you arrange your training over a 12-week period to cause those lifts to increase. So I don't even like to talk about nutrition that much, and I'm really into this stuff. So I can only imagine what it's, what it's like for people who aren't even as passionate about it as me. But Stuart is a real nutrition expert, I think, and, and he has a gift for taking complex things and making them pretty simple so that people can understand them. And he, he just talked a lot about quality food sources, you know, locally sourced when you can get it, less processed, um, good quality proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, um, and, you know, in the right ratios for your body. Stuart's old school. I asked him about, I asked him about the um, myth of one gram of protein per pound of body weight, and and whether he would um, endorse that. And you, you know, he I don't know if Paul made it into the book, but he said to me that he, you know, he wasn't convinced that that much protein was necessary for anybody, but that um, a higher protein intake certainly w- is valuable for anybody who's training. So, um, you know, he Stewart is right behind that old school advice of eating a eating a higher protein diet if if you're hard training. But I, I think he would say at the end of the day, regulating your body weight all comes down to calories in versus calories out. And, and your activity level that, that influences that and either allows you to burn some of those extra calories or doesn't. And, um, you know, I think he'd have a guy get on the scale once a week, and if the scale's not moving up and you want it to, well, you got to add more calories from good quality food sources. And if it's not moving down and you want it to, you got to take calories away. And um, it's, it's to, to me and from talking to Stuart, it, it really is that simple. Um, you know, he doesn't talk, he doesn't, t- he never talked to me a ton about macronutrient ratios or anything like that. But in order to get, in order to meet your protein requirement, um, you, you have to, so, that, so many calories are devoted to that. Uh, there are only, there are only so many calories left over for the other macros, so they kind of fall in line by default. But he doesn't even – he never even really talked to me much about um, meal timing or anything like that. I mean, other than some old-school advice where, um, you know, he does talk about um, getting a quality feed in in the hour two hours after you train um, because your body's more receptive to receiving that nutrition at that time. But um, – he doesn't overcomplicate things with all this stuff. I never once have. There's a modern term called like, like um, oh, what the hell is that? Like intra-workout nutrition, and it's this idea of <laughs> right. sipping a sipping a a drink with some amount of protein and carbohydrates or something in it during the week dur- during the workout. Stewart has never once mentioned anything like that to me, and I just don't think he thinks it's that important. And neither do I. I mean, if you're if you're training and you feel like um, putting something in your stomach during training helps you out and um, allows you to train a, a little harder or whatever, or just makes you feel better during the workout. Hey, go for it. Have at it. Whatever. But um, it's, it's still at the end of the day, calories in versus calorie out, and quality food sources that 
That's exactly I, I right. Form the core of his the core of his nutrition philosophy. Stewart eats very clean, very clean, cleaner than I do. You know, I try to keep my body weight up somewhat for lifting. So uh, <laughs> I will admit that it's hard for me to get whatever thirty five hundred calories a day that are all from from perfect sources, but. Uh, Stewart has trimmed down a lot over the years, and um, and and he eats a super clean diet. Um, just you know, quality quality meats, quality proteins, lots of fresh vegetables, stuff like that. And he that's, right. that's, that's what he would tell anybody to do. No, you know, no frills, nothing fancy, no no magic supplement that's going to get you over the top. Uh, I don't think Stewart's ever endorsed a supplement, a specific supplement in his life. Yeah, that's what I admire about him. I mean, when you look at the old, you know, look back at all the old Hard Gainer magazines, there were very few ads in there, if any. I mean, yep. there was hardly any ads in there. I mean, he could have taken lots, you know, lots of ads and made lots of money, but he turned that down. And I, I admire yep. him for that. Yep, yep, I do too. I do too. Yeah, but, but, but the thing is, you know, when you ask him for nutrition advice or something like that, he 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 gives you such a basic answer, you know. You just know, even as he's spitting it out, that oh man, this this is going to take work to follow this. This is this All is right. going to be hard, and it's going to require effort. And I'm going to have to eat a more bland diet, maybe than I want to. You know, I, St- Stuart doesn't. I don't think Stuart cares that much if your food tastes great. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> if, it, if it gets the job done. If it gets the job done, then just eat it and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chuck, please touch on the uh, uh, please touch on the positive mental toughness that you've developed to get you through some of life's ups and downs. Well, I, you know, the longer we live, we all probably get scraped up a little bit along the way. Uh, very few of us are lucky enough to skate through life kind of unscathed and I'm no different and you know sometimes I've brought some of my problems on myself through stupid choices and decisions and you just once you've made a decision you just kind of have to work your way through that and and play it out and live the decision you've made and then some other times uh, some things have happened in my life that you don't really foresee that um, that you have to overcome and um, I wouldn't say I'm any expert on any of this. I have my dark moments just like anybody else where I'll be depressed and I'll think my life's not going the direction I want it to go. And um, but, I, but I've found outlets for dealing with that stuff, like the weight training. Um, I also right. write on some other topics that I'll touch on in a second. Um, and this helps me kind of purge some of that stuff, from some of that negative stuff from my mind. But... Um, when I was in my mid-late 30s, I was diagnosed diabetic, but, it's, but it was not the type 2 diabetes. I don't want to get too technical, but it was actually more type 1 diabetes. And so type 1 diabetes is basically, uh, probably a doctor would cringe at some of this, but uh, type 1 diabetes <laughs> is when your pancreas doesn't produce insulin. That, that organ mm-hmm has kind of shut down and it's not making insulin and you need insulin to be able to process carbohydrates that your body intakes. Otherwise your your blood sugar just goes way up. Type two diabetes, your body is still producing insulin sometimes at 
the, the level of a normal person, but you're not using your body is not using that insulin that it produces efficiently to be able to produce right. to um, digest those carbohydrates, and they're different. And I don't I don't want to like throw people into categories where we're kind of like one, there's a lot of blame, and the other, it's just happened that your organs shut down. But you do see that sometimes a lot of the times type 2 diabetics are overweight and sedentary, and that, you know, contributes to the reasons why their body isn't using the insulin that they make correctly. So a lot of type 2 diabetics, um, if you get them up and moving and exercising, their blood sugar improves. With with me right. now, while while you know some of that even benefits me as well, with me at being a type one diabetic and already exercising quite a bit. Now, granted, granted as a as a power lifter, I carry more weight than those health chart BMI things tell a person to carry. But I think most of us do. Um, but being a type one diabetic, it wasn't really about getting up and exercising more. It was about the fact that my pancreas shut down. And wasn't producing insulin, so right. um, I have to I have to take shots of insulin externally. Uh, I take long acting insulin every day, um, and then I carb count. So I have to be more conscious of carbohydrates I intake than other people. I carb count with each meal and take short acting insulin so that my body can use those carbohydrates. And I can't really eat huge quantities of carbohydrates at any meal because. You know, it's external insulin. It's not as efficient as the insulin your body produces. The timing that it gets released isn't as good, even if you take your shot right when you eat. So a lot of carbohydrates is going to cause my blood sugars to be higher than they should be. So I really have to watch carbohydrate intake more than a regular person. But I'm what's called a type 1A diabetic, and and that is um, the type of the diabetes that develops as an adult, where your pancreas quits producing insulin. And and mm-hmm. that's probably more than most people want to know about diabetes, but I felt like some, some context there uh, was appropriate. And I'll also add that my father, in the late 60s, um, you know, he, he became diabetic, actually earlier than that, I think, early 60s. Um, and they didn't distinguish back then between um, adult type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes. Most type 2s can be controlled with at least for a period of time by taking a pill that helps them use mm-hmm. insulin better because they're making it and, and by right. exercising more and stuff like that. There's also a couple of natural supplements that work very well. I've had some clients uh, that have had diabetes. And if you take cinnamon, I don't mean the sweet cinnamon, yes. I mean the raw herbal cinnamon. But yes. you know, if you take yes. a large you know, uh, I don't have the exact dosage amount in front of me, but I've done lots of research on it. But if you take cinnamon, um, bitter melon, and several other different things, they it can be a natural way to get your blood sugar down, along with uh, reducing carbohydrates and doing a lot more exercise, especially cardio. I'll even mess around with a little cinnamon, you know, stirred into my um, food or whatever a little bit. But, but honestly, that kind of stuff is going to have limited effect for someone like me because – I right. still have to take the ex- the insulin that I get externally. My body's not making any of it. Um, right. But but when my dad became when my dad became diabetic in the '60s, they didn't make these distinctions. They didn't have the equipment available to test you. There's a test I took to find out that my pancreas wasn't making insulin. They didn't they didn't even know back then. They just knew that your blood sugar was wildly out of control. Um, so they didn't know the difference between type one and type two. But uh, 
my dad went straight to insulin in the 60s, which is an indicator that, to me that he was he probably had the same issue that I have. His pancreas had probably not had probably quit producing insulin, and um, wow. so now he you know I don't. Hopefully, I'll live longer than my father, but I, I think he probably did some things. Although he was a good athlete and played a lot of sports, um, I don't think he probably did as much as I do to watch it. You know, there wasn't as much known back then. My father was a heavy smoker, like a lot of people in the 60s. But um, anyway, that, that, the diabetes diagnosis in my 30s has certainly been a challenge to overcome, Um you know, I, I still I still compete with it and train hard, and I think it's probably even more important for me to do that after the diagnosis than it was before. Um, the other thing was, <laughs> around the same time, um, I um, you know stupidly I've, I've loved football my whole whole life, and I literally I would literally play in a pickup game all the way up until I was close to 40 years old. If guys were putting the game together. I, guys were putting the game together. I was there, and 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 you know, not just the Thanksgiving Day Turkey Bowl. Like like I would be, playing, I would play backyard football in my thirties on the weekends while getting ready tackle, for powerlifting right? meets. <laughs> yeah, tackle, tackle, tackle. Wow. <laughs> yeah, tackle. Basically, like wow. basically like rugby. You know, we play. We I'd play any time we could get a game together, and um, and I, I was playing football, and some guy hit me from the side the classical ACL injury thing, only I didn't tear my ACL. Somehow my femur crashed down into the top of my tibia and broke my tibia in the knee joint. So it's called a tibial plateau fracture. And they had to go in there and take a little hammer and tap tap that tibia that had collapsed back up and level it out and then put a plate and five screws in my left knee and now, when they did that, the doctor was like, "Oh, one really good thing, Tucky, your meniscus somehow the way that femur hit it missed the meniscus, so your meniscus wasn't even torn when we tapped your hmm. when we tapped your broken tibia back up, your meniscus was intact. We didn't have to touch that um but the recovery prognosis from a tibial plateau fracture is not good you know they they told me to forget lifting and that I would probably walk with a slight limp. And uh, that's a very hard thing to hear in your 30s. You know, I know there are people who right. lose limbs and all kinds of things, but I was devastated. I mean, I love to exercise, and I, and I, I thought I'm just going to do anything I can do to, um, to follow the, the rehab protocol and just, you know, pray and whatever and just be as positive as I can. I, I just thought that I would do everything I could do to see if maybe I could – get this thing to heal so that I would be able to continue, even if I couldn't lift as heavy to, um, to, to be able to lift again. And I was like, I was like 16 weeks non weight bearing because they wanted that bone to heal correctly. So when I finally was able to put weight on my left leg, it had atrophied. Mm-hmm. I mean, four months of no weight bearing on your leg, that damn thing had atrophied. I couldn't even look at it in the mirror. I would get sick. I would look at that thing and I would think, this is my leg? I thought I wanted to have Earl Campbell's legs. I have, like, right. olive oil's legs. I have the legs of a broomstick <laughs> here. This is horrendous. But when they released me from rehab, you know, my um, my physical therapist, who was a wonderful girl um, and helped me through all that, she said, all right, you're free to go, Chuck, and, and you're, you have no limitations. And I said, that means I can squat? 
And she says, yes, just please take it easy and start slow. And um, so I started, I started with the bar, and I squatted like three sets of ten, my first squat workout post-injury with the bar. And I, I right. gradually added weight over time, and uh, uh, pretty much a year, maybe not quite to the day, but a year from that injury, um, I squatted 315 for 20. And awesome. and I thought, well, I'm back at least to a reasonable point. I just squatted 315 for 20. I also, you know, want to give a lot of credit to a lot of nice people who helped me along the way. And um, I, I do think maybe it could have gone the other way, and then you just have to deal with that if it happens in your life. But but I was very fortunate, and I worked hard. So, uh, you know, I'm grateful for that. Uh, and maybe what gives me that perspective is the third thing that I'm that I'm going to mention to you. Um, I had a daughter who was born in 2007. Her name was Ruby. She was a two-pound preemie when she was born, and um, she had to spend 60 days in the NICU before we could bring her home. Um, but she had, she kind of had some lung issues throughout her life. She had, had she had pneumonia when she was about a year old and had to go to the hospital, and very serious. She was at Children's National Hospital uh, for a couple of months. They, they put her on a ventilator, and it was very scary. She had pneumonia as an infant, um, but she recovered from that. But from that point forward, she always had, you know, she had been so small, and she was always small, and, and she had lung issues early as an infant. So they, they told us that her lungs were going to be a problem until she got to a certain age and weight. And, and that hopefully some of this stuff would clear up as she got older. But she had, like, childhood asthma and whatever. And we really had to watch her carefully um, during the winter season. And she would almost ha- always have uh, respiratory issues during the winter months. And um, she, she ended up getting pneumonia um, a couple of months shy of her sixth birthday. And we had her at Children's National Hospital, and, and she had had pneumonia, uh, you know, a few times in her life, usually not as serious as that infant pneumonia, not near as serious as that, but smaller bouts with pneumonia. And and this time we took her to Children's National, and um, her condition just deteriorated fast. Uh, the infection got into her bloodstream, and, and my daughter died um, in 2013, uh, uh, few months shy of her sixth birthday and it was pretty i mean obviously that's a devastating event to happen to to anybody and not just me everybody that loved ruby her her mother her grandparents um even just friends and and stuff you know everybody is, is shocked and numb and devastated when that happens but especially the parents and i have struggled with that since she died and and that's one of those things where yeah you question some set things you did and you think could we get gotten her to the hospital faster and whatever and um but but you know it happened and here you are and you're left to deal with it so i just i just turned i guess you know i don't have any real answers for anybody i write a grief blog about my daughter and some of those posts that i write I think are hard to read because, you know, I I wrote a post for Christmas uh, that was called my special Christmas wish. And while that has a nice title and you think, Oh, how sweet. Chuck has some special Christmas wish for us all. But it was, it really, what came out in that post was all this anger and sadness about losing my daughter. And, and my special Christmas wish was to ruin Christmas for everybody. (laughs) 
I wrote it in a humorous right. way, but there was some seriousness behind that. And I, but I have a lot of people contact me and say that because of me being the way I'm open and honest about my grief journey, um, that it kind of it kind of uplifts them and gives them courage to to hang on and keep fighting because they see someone else struggling. You know, all these typical grief platitudes of like everything happens for a reason and things will get better over time. Man, when you've lost a child and somebody says those things to you, you really just want to punch them in the mouth because that right. stuff doesn't necessarily apply to you. Um, so I, th- I think what I've done to deal with that is just, you know, turn even more to the things I love. I love to train with weights. I love to write about training with weights. I love to talk to people like you about weight training. And so I just immerse myself in that. And I love to write. And so I just immerse myself in all of those things to help me through it. But, um, you know, sometimes I don't, like, if somebody was looking to me as some kind of, role model for overcoming adversity or something, I almost, almost wouldn't want that, that burden because sometimes it's just a matter of um, getting out of bed and, and trudging forward and hoping the day has something decent in store for you. Chuck, that was awesome. I mean, that's going to help a lot of people. And just the fact that you're open, thanks a lot for that. Yeah. Yeah. If, you're, if anybody happens to go to my um, – my training website, trainwithchuck.com, I think there is a link to my blog on there. And it, but it's really, it doesn't have anything to do with training. Uh, it's mostly about my, my grief journey with my daughter. And the language is pretty atrocious at times. Um, I'm, I'm from West Virginia, and, man, I almost, almost just don't even trust a person who can't belt out a few swear words. So, you know, there, there's right. quite a bit of bad language. Quite a bit of bad language on my blog, but it is funny. You know, it is. I do write that you, people have told me, well, I don't know whether I should laugh or cry. This thing is, you know, and that's how my emotions are sometimes. That's how they are for a person who has lost a child. You know, one minute you're laughing and the next minute you're bawling your eyes out and you don't even know why. Um, so anyway, if it, if it could be of help to anybody who's suffered a great loss, I think there's a link to my blog on my website as well. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Now, Chuck, we have time for one more. Could you please go over some of the factors that are out of the gym that maximizes the progress in the gym? Sure. And, you know, training does have this tendency to kind of take over your whole life if you're serious about it and you really want to get stronger. And I I wouldn't tell anybody to give up their social relationships or sacrifice their career for training. Uh, Stuart's a big guy on balance, and we tried to talk in the book some about having balance in your life and not neglecting these other areas just to get bigger and stronger. And, you know, maybe you can do that for a little period of time when you're a teenage kid and you don't have a lot of other responsibilities and, and you just want to get big and strong to play a sport. Okay, whatever, do that for a couple of years. Who cares? But at some point, we all grow up a little bit, and we have other responsibilities, and that's another great thing about the hard gainer training philosophy. It's not a protocol that requires you to be in the gym six days a week. You, you only train right. maybe two or three days a week, and so you have some time to be outside the gym and foster your social relationships and um, focus on your work. Um, and I, I think those are things that are important spiritual, you know, I, my spiritual development is probably lacking. Uh, and I'm a little bit jaded towards spiritual things because of circumstances in my life. But in my own way, 
I guess I do have a, a spiritual side as well. But um, so when you talk about all those factors outside the gym, you know, I would never tell anybody to be so obsessive about all this stuff that they don't also enjoy life. I mean, you know, I know right. people that can't take a trip because they're worried about finding a gym on their trip or something. And I'm like, it's two <laughs> weeks out of a 30-year training career. Just take your damn trip. You're going to learn so much more things about life and uh, different cultures and how people are that will benefit you in some way that you don't even realize when you go back to the gym and you start training. Will you fucking relax about the training and, and go <laughs> right. take your trip? So. Right. I think people, you know, I appreciate the, the passion and dedication that people have sometimes when I talk. And I'd rather have a passionate, dedicated person who's worried about all this stuff than the opposite, somebody who just doesn't give a shit. And you're trying to get them to train hard, and they're pounding beers five nights a week. You know, they, they go out with their buddies till 3 in the morning every – well, that's no recipe, recipe for progress either. So you've got to have right. a little balance in your life, and I think that's where – um, these outside the gym factors come into play, and and w really what we're talking about there, like any of this stuff, there's nothing revolutionary here. You already know it on some level. Um, we're, we're just talking about rest, recovery, and proper nutrition. And you, you got to get your sleep at night if you're going to be good in the gym. When I was in junior high, one of my teachers, I don't know if there's any truth to this or not, but I sort of bought into it. But one of my my geometry teacher, um, he felt like proper rest was key to being mentally alert enough to be able to learn geometry. And it, it hmm. certainly was for me because to this day, I don't know really what the hell geometry is, but I did <laughs> right. the best I could and my rest helped me. But he, said, he said that every hour of sleep you get, he knew that we were kids and we were fidgety and had a lot of energy and we'd stay up playing video games and whatever. And he knew that we weren't getting proper rest a lot of times. And he would tell us right. that every hour of sleep you get before midnight is worth two hours after midnight. And I, I, I don't that. know where the hell he got that or whether there's any science-based truth to that or not. But, you know, it encouraged me to try to get to bed by 1030. If you get to bed by 10.30, right. that's an hour and a half before midnight. But according to his stupid philosophy, that's like three hours. <laughs> One and a half becomes three. So I, I think it's important to, to try to, to get your rest. You know, there, a lot of people say we need eight hours of sleep. I don't know that everybody needs eight hours of sleep. I, I remember Ken um, Leisner talking about how he would only sleep every other night or something like that. And I right. guess he knew his body and what worked. Yeah, he knew his body and what worked for him. I think he's definitely way in the minority, and that, that's another thing we do that I want to point out. You know, we always look for these crazy exceptions to the rule and think, um, well, like, well, that guy trained six days a week, two times a day, and he progressed. And I'm like, yeah, but that guy's the extreme outlier. You're probably not that guy. You're also probably not the guy who can go to bed every other night. You're probably like, – let's start out with normal and – and then maybe we can deviate from normal a little bit. But why do we? Why do you always identify with these outlier examples? So that's right. Anyway, um, you know, we we need our rest, and whether that's seven hours or nine hours or something, I would start somewhere in there and and try to get adequate sleep every night. And um, and and the alcohol thing, man, that's big, especially with some of the people in the age group that that I like to work with, you know, teenagers and young adults, Me too. Um, they, they have social lives and they like to go out. Well, I think you wrote once that 
if you're, I think you wrote, like, if you're drinking more than once a week, you're not dedicated to your training. If you're drinking once a week to the point where you wreck yourself, though, right. that's even too much. You know, go out on Friday or Saturday night and have, I don't know, I'm not going to give anybody a number, but, but have a few drinks. And, but don't stay up the whole night to, so that you have to sleep the whole next day and into the next day to, to, get, to recover right. from that. You're just circumventing everything you're doing in the gym. So, so adequate rest, uh, watching those bad habits, and being honest with yourself. Like, what's my life really look like? What do I really do? Not, not what do I tell people I do. What do I actually do? A lot of my younger clients in D.C., that was the missing link because they would come in and they'd be telling me all the great stuff they do, and they even eat good, you know, but then you come down to the drinking. Yeah. You know, how many nights a week yeah. do you go out? Well, you know, guys in their 20s, especially if they're single, I mean, a lot of them are going out three or four nights a week, and they're pounding beers and drinking way too much, and they, they wonder why they're yeah. not recovering or not getting the results, and that's exactly why right there. Yeah, yeah. And, man, I don't even think a lot of them – I don't even think a lot of them want to drink that much. It's just that social lubricant where a lot of these kids, they're, they're young and they, they don't – you know, they're not real worldly or whatever. Hell, they're scared to talk to a girl unless they're half-looped. So that's a problem. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> I'm right. Like, I, I try to talk to them. I'm like – I'm trying to talk to them. I'm like – Hey, how about you do this, you chicken shit? You know, try to make them like get, get, uh, appeal to their manhood a little bit. I'm like, how about you go right. up and talk to one girl sober for me and see how that goes? Can you just do that? Right. And and then I think honestly, if if they can if they can figure out how to talk to a woman without being buzzed, then they don't they don't it's not the crutch anymore that they need. So I don't know. That's just a theory of mine. Some people just like to drink to drink, but I do think that some people can't talk to the opposite sex unless they're drinking. Yeah, Chuck, buddy, that's going to be a wrap. And thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. Please give us your website again where people can get your book before you sign off. Sure, sure. It's trainwithchuck.com, and there's a link to the book on the website. The book is called Inside the Mind of of an Iron Icon. It's available on Amazon, both um, electronically and in print. And both versions are very reasonably priced. Uh, they actually adjust the price of your Kindle version a little bit based on sales. But I think right now, the, and you don't have to have a Kindle to read it. I'll add that. Right now, the electronic version is like $5.99, and the print version is $11.99. So this thing That's is very, very reasonably priced. Uh, you know, I think people would get something good out of it. Um, and if you, uh, the one, another thing I would like to tell people to do, you know, if you read it, and even if you don't like it, if you could take the time to post a review for us on Amazon, we would really appreciate it. Those reviews are really what people read when they're trying to decide whether they should buy a book or not. I can I can say buy my book, buy my book until I'm blue in the face, but I wrote the damn thing and I have a vested interest in it. But when people review the book, and whether they review it positively or negatively, that's what folks look at, I think. So if you if you, if you read it, give us a review. We would love that. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. I've, I've, I've really, um, you know, like I said in my intro, I've, I've admired you for years. I had a great time when I came down and trained with you. I, I still tell stories of the time I came down to Wheel and Strength Training and Train. I even, I even wrote it up uh, for a Hard Gainer article back in the day. So if anybody's ever curious about my training session at Wheel and Strength Training, you can actually read about it in the old Hard Gainer magazine. But I remember <laughs> after we trained – 
we went, uh, and I've been down a few times, but one time after we trained, we went upstairs to the barbecue place above you and, and, and ate barbecue and uh, just bullshitted about life and training for a while. So I've, I've right. always enjoyed our time together, and it's been an honor. Thanks a lot, Chuck. I really appreciate that. Good luck on your book. Thank now, you. Don't be a flamingo, you have to do your squats. Don't be a flamingo, real lifters work their legs. That's going to do it for this edition of Natural Strength Night on MindForceRadio.com. Please bookmark that website, MindForceRadio.com. Bob is always looking for new writers for NaturalStrength.com who are old school, hardcore, write with passion, and have a strong anti-steroid stance. He also wants your training questions so they can be answered on the show. Please send your articles and training questions to Bob at MindForceRadio at Earthlink.net. Thanks for listening. See you next time.